Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combined trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. Hello and welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, show number 25. Wow. Almost half a year. Almost. It's, that feels good. It's yeah. our silver jubilee. It's gone really quickly, actually, since we started. Yeah, it has. It really has. It's been a lot of fun to do. So what is it? The Hobcast Book Show is from Hobeck Books. We are UK independent publishers of the following genres. Thrillers. Crime. Mystery. And suspense. I'm not sure what voices we were both doing there. I have no idea, but I was doing my sort of, hello. Yeah, I was trying to be quite flat. I was doing my corporate reassuring voice. (laughs) Thrillers, yeah. No, no, it would be sort of, um, and you can be assured that your loved one is in the best possible hands at Sunrise Retirement Home, that kind of thing. Yeah, so daytime ads. (laughs) Yeah. Are you over 50? Do You You, you are. Well, yes, I am. Do you worry about funeral expenses? Well, we here at Sun Life are here to, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, you'd be good at that, actually. I hope someone's listening who could recruit you as a... It doesn't cost you a thing. And guess what? (laughs) You get a free pen. Wow. Oh, you sold me. I want the pen. So there you go. Well, that's our next uh, business venture. (laughs) (laughs) Yours? I don't know about me. Yeah, that's my, uh, that's my, uh, my soft corporate voice to appeal to the older generation. Uh, lovely. Uh, it's actually quite sinister, isn't it? It is, actually. You you went a little sinister towards the end, so... You know you want to. You're going to die soon. Werther's Originals. Ring yeah. us up. <laughs> yeah. Werther's Originals. Right, OK, that's enough coffin dodging for now. Let's uh, let's concentrate on the programme. Yes, why we're here. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, our guest this week is Terry Nixon, or R.D. Nixon, as she's going to be publishing with us, and her book, Crossfire, her first crime novel, is coming out. She's a very experienced author in, in other genres, and we'll be talking about the differences between writing crime and all the other things that she's she's done over the years. Uh, and that's a fabulous interview to come a little later. So Terry Nixon joining us from uh, I think it was her workplace actually it's down in Plymouth, Devon, yeah. yeah, Plymouth, yeah, lovely spot. I'm jealous. <laughs> Anywhere near the sea, I'm jealous. Yes, because she can just pop over to some of your favourite places, can't she? And find a pasty and oh no, oh, oh <laughs> I'm my so stomach sorry. is rumbling. Uh, bacon butty was lovely, but it's not a patch on a pasty, is it? Or a parsty, as they would say. No. There we go, back into uh, into another voice. Okay, well, uh, we've got plenty to talk about in our in our week and the general sort of publishing week. We'll start with that, shall we? Yeah. Where would you like to start? Um, the daggers. I mean, we we our calendar somewhat sort of revolves around the Dagger Awards because uh, we we try and nominate as many of our authors for Daggers. Um, I mean, we've only been running a year, but so far, and you know, we will continue to do so. And so, uh, the twenty twenty one winners were announced this week. Congratulations to them. Not at all jealous. <laughs> yes, yeah, so. I'll just get the. Uh, I'll get. Yeah, where's my copy of the of the list? 
I know you, there's one that you want me to... Uh... Yeah, so I'll start with the, the, the Diamond Dagger. So you've read some um, of this author's uh, books, I'm sure. Martina Cole. Uh, one, yeah, I have, yeah. So uh, much deserved for her. Um, the Gold Dagger by, has been won by Chris Whitaker with We Begin on at the End. So I don't, I don't actually know that one, but I've, I've seen it sort of advertised and... Um, yeah, no, congratulations. And S.A. Cosby's Black Top Wasteland and Nikki French, House of Correction, uh, were both highly commended. So congratulations to them. The Steel Dagger went to Michael Robotham for When She Was Good from Sphere. Um, so that's the, the thriller side of things, Yeah, isn't it? yeah. Now, John Creasy's New Blood Dagger. You don't want, me, you don't want to have a crack at this. I could try. No, I... no, no. Well, actually, it would be funny. But... Okay, so the, the John Creasy New Blood Dagger has been won by... Eva, Bjorg, Agudadoto. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> if you're listening, Eva Bjorg, Idjestadotil, who's an Icelandic writer, uh, The Creek in the Stairs. It was actually a translation. Creek on the Stairs, I do apologise. Published by a render in this country, translated by Victoria Cribb. So, Eva Bjorg, Idjestadotil. I love it. It's quite sexy. <laughs> Yeah, well, I've had to do a lot of um, Icelandic names in my old career in sport because they became a, a bigger you know, sort of uh, feature of, of certainly football. But also, don't forget that uh, the, the world's you know strongest man mm. is also Icelandic. And his name is? Um, I can't remember. But anyway, we did a feature with him. You had to pronounce it, though. <laughs> no, oh, well, no, that's fine. I can't, just can't remember his name, actually. But he used to play the mountain. In um, in Game of Thrones, he played a physical geo- geological feature. No, he played a the bodyguard of um, whatever her name was. You know, the evil queen at the end of the the series. Anyway, um, he was a gigantic bloke. Uh, I think he's his record is uh, deadlifting eleven hundred kilograms, which is just ludicrous. The bar looks like it's about snap in half when he lifts it. Is, um, he's is, quite quite a guy. Is that when you're lying down and you lift up deadlifting? No, it's it's when you you. It's hard to describe on the on a podcast <laughs> or on the radio, as they would say in in old money. Uh, okay, so you've got a bar with loads of discs either end, yeah. Yeah. And all you're doing with that is you're crouching yeah. and you're dragging it up so that it's above knee level. Oh, uh, so not quite weightlifting like in it the is, old days. Is, well, it's not. It's not in the sense. Yeah, it is part of the weightlifting. Yeah. Sort it, of. Uh, it's the beginning of it. To, yeah, to some extent, but you, you, because you're only lifting it a certain way, it's mm. a dead, a, a deadlift. You know, so there's, it is essentially, the whole of your body is pressed into action on this one move. Blimey! Okay, mm. it is. It's the it's the bedrock of pretty much all strength building. Mm. If you can deadlift. So um, yeah, when I was a couple of years ago, I, I I went through a period when I was I was doing not bodybuilding or anything like that, but I had a, a personal trainer. And we did a lot of deadlifts, and it's it, you know, in 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 essence, it looks easy, but boy, is it, it you know, you do eight or nine heavy deadlifts, and you're absolutely you know broken by the end of it. So, uh, congratulations to him for being the world's strongest man. Uh, and being from Iceland. <laughs> okay, here's one we're uh, we're interested in because clearly Mark Whiteman um, is in the uh, in the running for two. Bloody Scotland Awards. Uh, did we mention that he's short? No, we didn't. No, this is our news this week, isn't this it? This is part of the Hobeck news, yes. So what is that Hobeck news? That's 
um, so as well as being longlisted for the Mukulvani uh, uh, um, Scottish um, okay. Crime Book of the Year. <laughs> yeah, the Mukulvani Award for the Best Scottish Crime Book of the Year, yeah. Uh, we also found out uh, this week that Mark has been shortlisted for the uh, Crime Debut of the Year. For, yeah, for, bloody Scotland debut. Yeah, so he's up for two of them, which is, it, we were just sort of, we couldn't quite believe it really, could we? So, uh, No, oh, well, we, we could certainly believe in him, but uh, yeah. but it's no, it's been an absolute, uh, it's been amazing. And he's even featured in the Scottish Sun this week. I know, that made me, and, and I think there's some more national newspapers yeah. uh, today and uh, early next week he's going to feature in. Yeah, and that, that has reflected strongly in sales so that's been fabulous but uh so the hist- uh, historical dagger uh went to vazim khan with midnight at malabar house uh published by Hodder and stoughton mm. so uh, interesting um that i mean it's it's abi makaji is really sort of the poster boy of that and we're hoping to meet him at harrogate um he's in line for well we'll talk about it in a minute um the uh thinkston's prize uh we'll talk about the, the festival in general in a second mm. What else have we got? Um, well, crime fiction in translation dagger. Uh, yeah. So that's been won by Yunko Un for the Disaster Tourist, which is translated by Lizzie Bueller. Bueller, as in Ferris Bueller. Yes. Short story dagger, Claire McIntosh with monsters. <laughs> uh, dagger in the library, Peter May, legend. He is a legend, isn't he? Uh, Publisher's dagger, went to Head of Zeus. That'll be us next year, trust me. <laughs> and debut dagger for an unpublished novel. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Hannah Redding with Deception and highly commended was Fiona McPhillips with Underwater. So congratulations to all of them. But we did put in some entries. We didn't get to where we wanted to with it. But no, we'll, but we'll, I, we'll I do think, better next year. yes. I mean, you know, it's very stiff competition as well. So um, it's, a, it's a highly acclaimed prize in the crime writing world. So... Absolutely. We'd be very honoured to be even in a long list and short list, wouldn't we? So Absolutely. And the, we're members of the Crime Writers Association who, who award the daggers and uh, they've been very good to us over the last few months. Yeah, so, they have. Um, yeah, let's just touch on this story that's emerged from the Harrogate, uh, the old peculiar crime writing festival in Harrogate, which is, what, a couple of weeks away now. Uh, in fact, I'm going to be stopping in Harrogate tomorrow night. You are. I'm a little jealous because you're planning on taking your boys for tea, aren't you, at Betty's? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure it's going to work out in terms of timings, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll venture in before we leave. Anyway, certainly. Uh, right, a bit of hot water for the festival. And the reason is, is that they've had to apologise that they haven't featured any women writers of colour in their programme. Not not for the awards, but for just someone to, speaking on the platform. And um, what they've said this week, let me just uh, get their statement. In a statement on Twitter, Harrogate Festival said, It has been brought to our attention that our 2021 Crime Writing Festival programme contains no female writers of colour. It should not have been necessary for this to be pointed out to us. We work hard on diversity at the Crime Writing Festival, but although there have been many unique challenges this year, we got this wrong and we apologise. We will be examining our planning processes, changing our practices, including expanding our programming committee and working hard to make it make sure it never happens again in future years. Yeah, it's a very heartfelt apology, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's interesting. I looked at the program and skimmed over it and obviously we'll be going to a lot of sessions and and, and throwing ourselves into the festival as much as possible. (laughs) Uh, 
it is a it is a limited sort of cast list this year in the sense that a lot of people are appearing on on multiple panels um and i guess that that's around covid restrictions um obviously they've put a lot of emphasis on some superstar names appearing um including richard osmond's we've mentioned already uh but ian rankin is on about six panels i think and val mcdermott and all that sort of thing so um you know there's a lot of the sort of established and, and recognizable names um abir Mukherjee is going to be on i think three of them mm. uh, and he's actually commented and said you know uh, uh it's it's unfortunate for harrogate not to have seen this problem coming but i'm glad they take you know they've promised to change their approach so fair play but uh, again you know this is a an issue that is sort of convulsing the publishing industry uh, with that question, you know, the, the, the represent underrepresentation of people of color in publishing, both at uh, production level and in the author community. Yes. And another story that's been around this week is um, uh, sort of lack of representation of people in color in GCSE English language, uh, sorry, English literature um, courses as well. So that's being addressed, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's definitely a hot topic at the moment. It really is. Okay. Uh, you've got one that uh, pertains to education. Yes. Um, I, I do seem to find stories about education and I, I, have, I do have an interest in it because I used to be a, a school governor and I've got three boys all in, still in education. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had a message from um, somebody who runs a website called The Untidy Bookshelf which is a book-selling website initially, um, fundamentally. fundamentally. And um, I was looking on his website because he approached us to see if he his, his website, they also do book reviews, and he wanted to know if we had any books that we wanted reviewing. Of course, we said, yes, please. And I had a look at his website, and there was one page on his website, which is a, a sort of a... Um, an attempt to get uh, donations to school libraries because school libraries, especially during the pandemic, have suffered with cuts in their budget. They've had schools have had to de- de- devote their budgets to textbooks so that all, all children have a textbook each because they have to quarantine books, they can't share books, things like that. And therefore, you know, it's fairly obvious if you're a school and you've got a finite num- amount of money, one of the things you cut is the extra bits and the school library is that, you know, it's a it's almost it's sort of a bonus to education in terms of budgeting. Um, so there was also an article in the bookseller about this, about the, the, the problems that schools are, are facing at the moment with um, their libraries. They've got old books, they've got tatty books. Some of the teachers are saying they, they can't believe they're giving out these books to children because they're so such bad condition they're not current they're not you know it's they got Edo Blyton books yeah so oh, shock horror <laughs> Blyton I know that's another story yes. that's going around at the moment poor Enid <laughs> um so you know he's got this venture going on his website and he's trying to raise money and what he's decided to do is uh, have a raffle of signed um books by author, uh, author signed books so we've donated two of our books Robert Dawes um and Throttled by A.B. Morgan He's going to raffle those off. I saw um, he's got an MV and MW Craven book. Oh yeah, as fantastic well for his yeah. raffle. Um, so you know it, it's 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 going good. So and I approve. <laughs> oh no, yeah, yeah, that's an admirable thing to do, and 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 clearly, it's vital that yeah. Of course, we need textbooks, and it's a lot of pressure. And indeed, there's been a big pressure for a lot of underprivileged households who haven't got computers. I mean, how do you get? educated in a pandemic if you can't if you haven't got a a computer or b you you know can't afford the broadband connection again that that has 
you know, a lot of bodies have been trying to address that. We've got uh, your friend Malcolm Rutherford, otherwise known as Marcus Rashford. <laughs> Who we uh, saw last night. <laughs> yeah, playing, you know, turned up for England um, in that 4-0 win against the Ukraine. Uh, sorry, Ukraine. Should be not the Ukraine. Um, it, it's um, a lot of efforts to try and encourage children to read, but you know, ultimately the, their school libraries need to be stocked with decent books uh, in good condition. You're absolutely right. And so uh, we fully support that. Um, as a company and will continue to do so. I think it's a fantastic initiative. And it's it's related to the sort of uh, diversity issue as well because, you know, there's a lot of very poor schools in deprived areas and they if they can't afford to, to have well-stocked libraries, then uh, all children won't have the same opportunities to discover a love of books and perhaps discover a love of, you know, they might want to work in publishing or write books themselves. It's just, it's like a sort of a vicious circle in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, now, let's just think about Hobeck News. We've, we've mentioned uh, one key thing, which was the additional uh, shortlisting for Mark Whiteman uh, in the bloody Scotland. Anything else that's sort of bubbling along for us? We've got an author announcement coming up this week. Yes. So we've been talking to a new author who we're going to announce, um, in fact, the day this podcast goes out tomorrow. Um, so that's very exciting. Uh, very uh, we're thrilled about this author, aren't we? Slightly different to some of our other books, but very. Um... Well, I was gripped, and yeah. I've written the blog about that, and um, all will be revealed as the podcast goes out on Monday. So uh, excited about that! Uh, I'm off on holidays next week, so that, we'll talk about that in a minute after our interview. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's been another busy week. Again, it's the sort of multifarious jobs that we we have we have so many different aspects to to the role well for me i decided to devote last week to really get into grips with facebook advertising because we tend to divide the marketing side of things a little bit whereas you concentrate on the amazon ads and i concentrate Mm -hmm. on the facebook ads so i i knew i had some time at home without you in the office um and that's a good time for me to play uh tutorials and you know sort of online learning about how to advertise on Facebook without disturbing you. So I've, I've listened to quite a lot this week, um, partly from the self-publishing formula, uh, Mark Dawson's um, courses. Course, yeah. And you know, very, very relevant. Some aspects aren't quite relevant for us, but I've taken an awful lot from that. And so I've spent a lot of time creating ads and playing around with uh, the text and the images and um, targeting, which um, is, I've just found absolutely fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> so, you know, we, we've got a level of knowledge, but it's, it's basically advancing that. Yeah, we're always learning, aren't we? So Absolutely, absolutely. Right, well, let's get to our feature interview this week with Terry Nixon. And uh, Terry contacted us a few months ago with uh, an offer of Crossfire, which uh, actually was called something else at the time, wasn't it? Oh, yes. I think it was Nowhere to Run, I think. Right, okay. Well, um, we, we, uh, we loved her submission and eagerly signed her up. And um, Terry's a, a well-established author figure, uh, writes, writing a number of different uh, genres. Uh, family sagas is, is a big one for her, also fantasy, but this is her first crime novel. And so when we caught up with her this week, uh, we were keen to find out what it's like moving into a new genre. It is actually the first book I ever wrote as well. So although I've published um, um, several historical family dramas and whatnot um, quite recently, you know, since 2013. 
this one was actually written in the early 1990s when I first went up to stay with my family in Scotland. And then I looked around and I was like, it's because they were because they're not pretty mountains through Glencoe, they're so lumpy and when the weather's bad they're, they're black and angry looking and I thought I've got to put somebody up there who doesn't know how to get out <laughs> so I went back home and I wrote this well yeah it's turned into crossfire I call it my triggers broom so because it's it's pretty much the same but well no actually it's it has changed quite a lot but at its heart it to me it's the same book so so did you read it at all between the two so when um so when you wrote it in the 90s did you just just put it in a drawer and then return to it recently i i I put it in the drawer for about 10 years or so i think and then i I just one of those i keep digging it out and looking at it going yeah it's not actually that bad and then putting it away again because something else has cropped up or um because as well as the family service and things i also self-published my own series of um, mythic fantasy novels so then those came up as well so and every now and again I put those aside and I take out this book that's had about a million different names and um and it's really actually not that bad so I update it to where we are then and then I put it away again so I've had to update the tech in it I don't know how many times I've the advent of mobile phones has changed a, a lot of things about it and yeah, it's had, it's had several incarnations over the years. So it goes away for a, a few years and comes out again. And this time I thought, nope, it's staying out now. I'm going to actually do something with it. So, yeah. I'm glad is. you did. Yeah, <laughs> so am I. <laughs> you, you touch on a, an interesting theme there. We've talked about with some of our other authors and indeed um, some of the, the the other people who've spoken to the, the podcast, the, the fact that... Uh, you know, the, the, things have changed so dramatically in terms of uh, the modern setting. It, it, mobile phones now make... The pain of my life. They are, <laughs> aren't they? I mean, in the sense that, you know, no one's, you know, unless they have lost signal, you know, you have to sort of invent a reason to lose signal yeah. or to lose their phone, and then suddenly they're they're having to live on their resources. But otherwise, yeah. they've got the com- computational power that... Uh, you know, the superpowers would have uh, killed for in the 1980s. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so, so when I wrote it, putting somebody in peril up in these ugly black mountains was pretty sort of straightforward, you know. There was a hundred different ways they could be made to stay there and not be able to get out. Um, and then mobile phones came along, and now I have to, <laughs> I have to rethink the whole premise of um, what put them there and, and, and how they, you know, how they've been forced to stay there without being able to get any help. So, yeah. Um, Although I love them and I wouldn't be without mine, they are still, they uh, make my teeth itch sometimes. Well, we talked about this on the last podcast because we, we had a lightning strike on uh, Friday night and um, which just blew the uh, Wi-Fi hub. And yeah, we were all completely lost because we had no signal, no internet, no means of communication with the outside world for, what, 20, about 20 hours, mm. I think it was. <laughs> that is a long time. So we yeah, had to play a ball game. It, it put me in the in the in the in the biggest trough I've been in for a couple. Well, at least a month, I would say. Oh. Uh, I was I was flailing about, wasn't I? I was I was an angry person. And I think what I noticed with you is is you. It was almost like you forgot, and you'd pick up your phone and you'd start scrolling, and then oh, <laughs> put it down again. <laughs> <laughs> this is when books are good. You see, pick up books. Don't yeah, scroll, um, but... well, you know, it's one of these things where. Yeah, it's a good reminder that the books are great. And, and um, but you know, I read most of my books now on the phone. 
whereas I don't. I'm, so I, I, I think we reacted in very different ways. I embraced the opportunity to, to old-fashioned read, <laughs> reading mm. style, whereas you, couldn't, you just couldn't deal with it. Yeah. So let's let's touch on on um, the family saga side of things. So I mean, this is your first. This was your first novel, um, and it's it's you know gathered dust for for periods of time. But your first public published works, the family sagas, uh, presumably, you know, you're going through the decades in those, and uh, over time, uh, is that is that correct? Um, some of them. Some of them take place. Um, well. Some of them take place um, in a space of quite a short amount of time, but some of them, some of them do skip a few years. But they don't—they're not sort of generational. Um, they're more to do with the saga aspect of it. It's more to do with the number of characters, the complexities of the different lives, and how they interact. And some sagas are um, generational in that they you've got your starts off as a, uh, a little girl and you end up where she's the grandmother these aren't really like that they they do skip a few years um but as i say yeah that the saga aspect is more um the different families interacting and 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 how they sort of progress through the things that get thrown at them so that there are different ways of looking at the saga and that's mine in, in terms of you know the, the research needed for that you know even though they might be quite sort of condensed periods of time you've still got to remember what was around yes. any given year haven't you because oh, yeah. you know, there's nothing worse than um someone picking up a a, a mobile handset in 1972 something <laughs> <No>. like that <laughs> <laughs> no you have to be careful with the anachronisms or um they're a big pitfall you have to really be careful um so i tend to not remember stuff i tend to just know where to go and find stuff when i need it because if i tried to learn all about the period I was writing. Most of mine tend to take place um, around the um, early part of the 20th century, so you know, up towards and just beyond the First World War. Um, so I don't sit and make myself learn all about that period. I sort of give myself an idea of how people lived, how my particular people lived. They're usually working class but they often interact with upper-class people. So you have to sort of get a vague idea of the dynamic and then just plunge in because if you try and make yourself learn everything you need to know, you'll never get anything done. You'll never start. <laughs> so I have a massive folder um, on my on my bookmarks um, bar that just says research and, and there's so many pages in there of home life and trenches, trench warfare life and medical this and, um, social that you know it's just just loads and loads and I just go and find it when I need it and, and wrap the story around it really I think there are people and I really do oh I think they're really clever who just know stuff I remember being asked <laughs> to go and do, do a talk somewhere because you're a historical novelist we want you to come and do a talk on home life in the 1916 whatever I think no <laughs> I don't know anything <laughs> I, I immerse myself in it when I'm writing it I'm, I feel like I'm there and I you know People have said really nice things about the research, but it's definitely when I need it, as I need it, and then forget it and move on, learn, you know, find out about something else, rainfall, you know, <laughs> whether, whether or not it was snowing on New Year's Eve on a certain day, a certain year rather, and, because you know, you have a fight taking place on a lawn. In my first novel, I had this New Year's Eve thing, and there was a big fight taking place on the lawn, and then I thought, ah. Oh, I think I'll make sure there wasn't six inches of snow that night because somebody will know. 
Yeah, it's funny. I, 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 when I started writing the, the book that I'm working on, um, it's set in July. Uh, is it July? Yeah, Ju- oh, God, second check, checking now. So it's July 1940, and I and, and I checked to see what the weather in London on a particular day was because I was writing sort of, uh, you know, I was giving it terrible weather and rain and driven rain and all this sort of thing to suit the mood, you know, the old yeah. pathetic <laughs> fallacy, isn't it? Um, and, yeah, luckily, <laughs> it turns out luckily that was, was what yeah. the weather was. Well, what amazes me is you can find out what the weather was like in July 1940. Oh, easily. It's because amazing. Of, yeah. Well, I mean, in wartime, the weather was a major, major factor. I mean, the fact that, you, you know, you you either could get, you, you know, the spitfires up or you couldn't uh, to defend, uh, you know, Britain. And it's as simple as that because your weather was very weather dependent. And indeed, obviously, being a naval nation at that time particularly, uh, we had very advanced weather forecasting for its time. Anyway, so I digress. But in terms of when you're uh, starting those books, um, what's the, the kernel of inspiration for a, for a series or for, for, for a new work by you? It's, it's usually family. Um because um, my sagas are family sagas, so and then they have hangers on. So it's usually, it's usually a core family um, dealing with something. So then I have to sort of think about if they're going to be a wealthy family or a working class family or somewhere in between or somewhere further down, um, you know, and even worse than you know poverty stricken. So yeah, I usually start with the idea of what kind of family I want to write about. It's really hard because I don't know. I, people are always always ask any writer, "Where do you get your ideas?" I absolutely have no idea. But most recent um, series that I wrote, Fox Bay Saga, um, two of them were out, and the third one's coming out for Christmas. I um, it was born of a sort of desperate attempt to get a publishing deal from <laughs> to move on from my last one. Because I had I wrote the Halligan saga and that had come to an end and I was talking to my agent at the time and um and she was saying well have you got an idea about what you want to write next and I was not really so she said well I'll give you a call and we'll have a chat and she called me and I hadn't thought about it at all um, <laughs> and then I just <laughs> I just went um there's this family and they run a hotel in Devon uh, and one of them is a con artist she's like oh that sounds good but yeah actually it's quite, it does sound quite good so. <laughs> And I went, I went back and uh, I kind of wrote an outline. And um, and the publisher said, yeah, we really like it. We love that it's set in Devon. We'll put it to our acquisitions team. And the acquisitions team uh, had their meeting and she came back to them. Yeah, yeah, the acquisitions team love it. But they want you to set it in Cornwall. No. <laughs> <laughs> so you love that it's set in Devon, but you want me to set it in Cornwall. Okay, I can do that. So, yeah, I just I kind of started to build the characters. And then the story comes from the characters. Um, so kind of this vague idea in the back of my head that blurted out during a panicky phone call. <laughs> and now it turned into um, three books, which I absolutely love. <laughs> so, so sometimes the best ideas out. come like that, don't they? They, yeah. they, just, 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 they just come out when you're under pressure. And Yeah, and I, I don't know how my ideas happen. They, I think they, they come from the characters and whatever one of them says on one page, that can just turn everything on its head and take you in a weird direction you don't know you're going in so yeah it's all very organic i think 
is probably the kindest way to say it. Um, off the cuff, off organic, panicky, yeah. <laughs> take your pick, any one of those. But I think that's one of your strengths, talking about character, is um, and my, my uh, sort of analysis when I was reading Crossfire was that, um, that the, your writing, your family saga writing, has sort of fed into your crime fiction because you, 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 there is an element of that in, in um, the, the, this book, of the sort of yeah. the family and the relationships and the relationships with other people. And, uh, you know, do, do you think there's yeah. a sort of crossover in the two... There is, and it, it's always worked the other way as well because my family sagas always got crime in them, and they've always got intrigue and people in desperate situations and stuff like that. So it's just a small step, really, to to turn it around and bring the family element, the relationship element. And I don't mean you know romantic relationships. There's not mm. very much of that even in my sagas. It's, it's all interaction between different people. Um, so. You know, parents and kids and aunts and uncles and friends and betrayal with all with all that can bring and all the um, sort of knock-on effects that can have on everybody. Um, so I do think, yeah, there are definitely elements of both in both times and also in my epic fantasy as well. So, so you've got you've got three different genres that you write in. Do you have to sort of concentrate on one for a period of time or can you flip between the two, like in the morning, do a bit of crime and in the afternoon, do a bit of <laughs> crime in the morning? <laughs> um, it's, normally I'm working on one um, and thinking about another. So at the moment I am working on book two in the Clifford McKenzie series. Um, and, and, but as well as, as well as my two genres that I'm doing, I'm also co-writing uh, a thriller, a two-book thriller with my uh, my friend Shelley, and the first one came out, and then we've nearly finished the second one. But that's totally different again. That's sort of, sort of a archaeological, um, sort of theocratic thriller thing as well. So there's, there's all sorts of biblical stuff going on there. Um, so whatever I'm working on at the time, that gets my attention, and then I can put something away, go off and do whatever, washing up, and I'll be thinking, yeah, I can think about one of the other genres then, um, when I'm sort of not physically working on, on whatever is next up. You see what I mean? There's a, obviously a, a timetable to keep to. It does get a bit confusing, though. So, uh, yeah. Um, but it does help that, as you say, there are lots of crossovers between the two, so I can be thinking about family dynamic in a crime series and think, oh, that would actually translate quite well to one of the dramas or the, the other bits and pieces that I'm working on. Brilliant. And who, who's, which authors um, inspire you? That's a really difficult one. Because I don't read very often in the genres that I write in. Right. So, because I'm always a bit paranoid that I'll accidentally nick something that belongs to somebody else <laughs> yeah. um, I, I have been reading a bit more crime and a bit more saga stuff a lot of the time because people have asked me to and I have enjoyed it um, but from choice I'm huge Stephen King fan absolutely love Stephen King um, and I do take a little bit of I mean I've written horror in the past as well just to throw that in there some <laughs> 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 um, quite graphic stuff as well actually um and I do, I do take elements from him, but it's mostly with him, it's his characters. Again, see, I'm so wrapped up in character 
any inspiration I take from any other author is probably going to be one aspect of character, like Stephen King, the way they, his characters interact and the way they talk is very natural. And Diana Gabaldon, um, from, you know, the Outlander um, author, I, I met her a few times actually before Outlander became like a massive thing that it became. And so I've always I've been a fan of her for a long, long time. And I like her relationships because they're not perfect. So very, even the most deeply romantic pairing, I don't know if anybody is familiar with the Jamie and Claire dynamic, they, they fight like cat and dog, you know, it's, and it's, but they are so deeply together that I find that fascinating. So I tend to say that. say that. Here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> so you've triggered us now. <laughs> oh no. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, um, different authors, but yeah, most of it seems to be because of their characters. And I can wield a claymore just like Jamie. Yeah, can you? <laughs> I don't know what a claymore is. It, it sounds. It's a large it weapon. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Let's not go I there. I mention it a little bit in cross, Crossfire, actually, because the little boy gets to hold one or try to hold one, and somebody has to help him hold it over his head. So. Yeah, no, 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 that's great. So uh, you, you touched on um, the Devon and Cornwall thing. You're currently living and working in Devon, but have a Cornish background, which yeah. is such a rich sort of literary heritage. Um, and, you know, I not so long ago I was reading Poldark novels just to see what – I mean, I love the series, both – versions i mean I, I particularly like the 70s one that yeah was something i grew up with and um uh you know <laughs> my recently dissolved marriage but uh the wedding was in the church that they filmed in 1970 whatever it was 75 yeah. down in um, in cornwall so um it, it it's an area that, that i know very well and both of us met in in devon so uh, we did meet in we did, yeah. Of course we did. Yeah, yeah. And we, yeah, we did. Um, we really pine. I, I suppose, you, you know, you and I have always saying this. We would love to run Hobick. If we could run it anywhere, it would oh. be Cornwall. If it? I could persuade yeah. the boys that they don't need to go to school in Tropshire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a commute, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but for you, what, what does it... Uh, uh, is there a, I mean, clearly you set your, your, a lot of your books there. What inspiration does it give you? Oh, it's, it's just the possibilities. I think if, it's easier if I cite my mythic fantasy books here, because I mean, the sagas take place pretty much anywhere coastal, but the mythic fantasy series that I write is set on Bodmin Moor, which is where I grew up. Um, and I just remember I used to, to just go out on the moors all day till it got dark again, no mobile phones, and um, and all the old disused mines and the the old chimneys, the old engine house chimneys, and, and the great gaping holes in the ground that were never fenced off because you know why would you back back in the seventies? Yeah, <laughs> um, and it's just it's just so much possibility, and I used to sort of walk along thinking, oh, I wonder what you know what's if I looked in there what would be looking back at me? <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, I, I mean, I started writing those a long, long time ago as well. Um, but they're all, they're all set. They're actually based in um, a little village called Minions. <laughs> and then, you know, populated with little yellow things. But, um, <laughs> but I've called it Liner Mill. So it's, I've kind of 
been able to play with the geography a little bit because Minions um, is close to um, a sort of a landmark called the Cheese Ring, which is a massive stack of stones that looks as if it's about to topple over if you so much as sneeze on it. And, um, yes, I know the ones you so mean. I, yeah. yeah, so I've kind of replaced those with an old burnt out windmill. Um, but the, the, the geography is it's, it's, it's pretty much the same. But that's my old stomping ground. So I used to we used to just go there and play. Basically, we didn't have to drive there or anything. We just used to walk up there and just play um, for hours and hours and hours every day. And you can't help when you're a kid. Your imagination is just absorbing. It's just taking in everything. And then when you get to the point where later on you're sort of starting to think about, oh, I'd like to write about so and so, and then all those memories are just there. Just you just need to tap into them, and then it just you know the way it feels when you step into a bit of fog. Um, uh, just the little things that you just bring the whole area back to life and then you can start looking at all the mystical side of things like that. Well, as I was saying, you know, if I look into this disused mine, is there, a, is there anything, you know, watching me back? So mm. I decided there probably was, so I wrote about it. That's fantastic, because, I mean, Bodmin yeah. is one of those places where it feels... Uh. Yes. Like it's 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 a moody place, isn't it? It um, is. Yeah, I, I do moody. I do enjoy moody. I don't very often write about nice weather and sparkling seas. No, <laughs> but you do you do you do moody really really well because that's you know both the McNabb principle and crossfire. The moodiness comes through really really strongly. Mm, yeah. It really does. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I, I mean, women. <laughs> Bodmin's yeah it's it's it is an extraordinary county and 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 there's kind of like you you got the dark heart of of, of Bodmin in in many ways uh but it's a very it's a very grounded place as well isn't it that area yeah in in comparison with the the, the um the very fashionable bits that I used to frequent uh in you know rock and all well, that I Padstow see. area yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah there's which, a know, very dark history along that coastline. I, I quite enjoyed researching that and then the piracy, you know, the reverse piracy, if you like, if you want to look at it that way, of, of whole villages being stripped of their workable, you know, working age people and taken away to goodness knows where on ships. So, so you know, but you've got the smugglers and all the rest of it and you look on that as being, well, that's a very Cornish thing. But when you think about how it all happened, in reverse as well, where, you know, crimes were committed against the people as well as by them. So I find yeah. that great. No, it is, it is, you know, it, it, it has a certain, there's a certain romance attached to it in, in later literature, I guess, but the, the cold reality is if, if you were shipwrecked uh, on Doom Bar, you know, good luck to you. If you came out, emerged alive on the beaches, you wouldn't like live for long. Uh, the way that a lot of uh, the, the villages would just bump you off and nick your stuff. What was that village yeah. where they all died? You oh, took me to. yeah, I, I took you to. Um, uh, gosh, um, it'll come back to me in a moment. Uh, Port Quinn. Oh yeah, just from. Um, I, I found that very moving. That place it was. Does the atmosphere? You know, you could sense it in the atmosphere that. Yeah, so I mean, to, to, to explain what what the the history is, and I, I, it's, it's a little vague in my mind, but um, a fishing community, a very small fishing community, the men set out to sea and never returned. That's basically the uh, the story. The entire fishing fleet and all the the men folk were lost, and 
the village died and it's sort of national trust now run it um but it has a real uh, and they're sort of abandoned buildings there are certain people who live there but it, it feels very cut off and you feel that certain that that melancholy mm. just descends on you as you go down it's a beautiful spot it really is wild and rugged in places but it has a sadness that pervades everything i think is that, is that your experience of, of you know that that story in port quinn um yeah it's i think there's a there are a few places where i mean um forgotten the name of the old penley lifeboat disaster yeah, absolutely well. you know there's there's so many places where some of it is in living memory and and some of it stuff you read about but even if you've only read about it you go to a place where it happened and it's as real as if you read about it last week or you know as if it happened in within your um, living memory there's and some of the mining accidents as well um yeah there are so many places really along along the cornish coast but if you, if you're not surrounded by people and if you sort of just stop and kind of look around and just let let the atmosphere come on you you can just get taken to some very very dark places yeah, yeah, no, we, we've been to Mausel and where many of those men from the Penley disaster yeah. came from. Um, and in fact, I was writing a kid's book, The, the Great Cornish Pasty War, um, <laughs> which... <laughs> it will get published. It will get published. I will finish it one day. <laughs> uh, essentially, um, pits Devon and Cornwall against each other over the origins of Cornish pasties. Uh, Dangerous. Yeah. Well, I know it's a, it's a hot topic. I mean, yeah. you know, it raises yeah. its head, you know, it's, it's, but the fact, <laughs> so I, I'd said it in uh, the initial uh, chapters in, in Mausel and then moving on to um, St. Michael's Mount around the, around the, the Mount's Bay, past Penzance and Marazion, uh, or I can't mm. pronounce it properly. Um, yeah, that's but, what Marazion, uh, yeah. Oh, good. Excellent. Good. <laughs> There's a grockle who knows what he's talking about, fine, or an Emmet, or whatever we call ourselves. Um, uh, but it, yeah, then I thought, you know, I, I'd set a big scene in the in the pub where a lot of these men were called out from because they were all celebrating. It was near Christmas, and they were called out. And um, uh, yeah, I think they were doing the, the switching the lights on for Christmas or something. And uh, then this storm comes in, and I thought, you know, I can't really set a, a sort of a, a scene there of, of comic. Um, in the in the cellars of the, of the of the pub in mm. in Mausel, um, it's just not respectful. So I've, I suddenly got these qualms. I, I felt sort of their, their shadow across me as I as I wrote this stuff. Um, and yes, it's a fun caper for for middle grade children, but I, I just suddenly felt very uncomfortable. Um, yeah. it, it's it's difficult. That is difficult when you're when you're writing about a real place um, that you've kept the names for. My my places I. I tend to fictionalise them quite early on so that A, it gives me a lot of um, licence, but B, as you say, if anything is like to cause anybody any kind of distress or, or you know, memories or anything like that, they've got, there's, there's nothing, you know, there's nowhere to pin it, you see what I mean? They, they're not likely to look at the name of a pub, as you say, and go, oh, well, that's where so-and-so happened. If the pub's got a fictitious name, it could be anywhere. So it's, it is... Um, Write your book about the past awards. I want to read it. I think you'll enjoy it. Well, it's a lot I, of fun. At the end, of the, I worked. The... I worked against this for five years, so I'm quite uh, along with the old Cornish pasties. I'm, I'm, I'm right there. 
<laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, we no, love no, Cornish like, pasties. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, and I had some technical help with, from a friend of mine who was a, a, once a Royal Marine because the, the final scenes of battle at um, Limstone Commando, uh, oh, not right. that far from you, which is just outside Exeter where the, the Royal Marines do their training and um, they've got the secret recipe. I think you'll have to send Terry yeah. a copy. Yeah, uh, yeah I will. <laughs> yeah. You, you can judge from both sides whether uh, I've got the balance yeah. right. But uh... <laughs> all, all I can say is that I just really want to pass you now. That's, that's... Me yeah. too, actually. I was yeah. one of the ones who yeah. dance as well, a proper one. Yeah, proper yeah. job, yeah. Proper <laughs> job. Yeah, as they say. Awesome. <laughs> I, I, I'm always interested with, with writers. Um, if I could just sort of... It's a difficult question, and it's kind of a, an odd one. But what's the sensation you get when you're when you're writing and it's going well? How does that feel? How does that sort of embody itself? Oh, I just, yeah, it's really hard to just considering I'm a writer. It's really hard to describe. Um, <laughs> it just feels light. I just get this. I'm, I'm, I can sort of imagine it now. It just feels like um, full of bubbles. Um, if, if you stop to think um, and you see how well it's going, because quite often you, you're writing it and you don't really see how well it's going and then you, you sort of stop. And then when you're reading it back through and then some connection happens um, or something comes clear when you think, well, you've you put something in ages ago, but you don't know why you did it. And then you're carried on writing. And like three days later, you realise why you did that. You get this, this fizzing. It's, it's just, you can't really describe it. It's, mm. it, it's payback for all the other stuff <laughs> the hair tearing and the you know weeping tears of blood and all that stuff um and the you know rending of clothing um it's payback and it is more than payback it, it really does overshadow or you know out, outshine i should say any of this the negative stuff is just made up just sometimes just by the sudden realization that your instinct you know three chapters ago has now sort of paid off and you've got this connection and you suddenly go oh, that's it and then the neighbors start calling the police and <laughs> it's three o'clock in the morning yeah it's the, it is Lots the best natural high and isn't it i mean it, you, when you look back at something you think oh, i wrote that and i i don't yeah. remember the process of doing so because yeah. it just it's, came it's like the elves and the shoemaker isn't it and you just sort of wake up and you go that happened when did that happen that's quite good i like that um so yeah it's it's really hard to describe or to, to overstate how exciting it is when you get that little connection and, and everything slots into place and you go, that's it, I've done it. I, I know what's going on now. And, <laughs> and does that keep you coming back for more? Sorry? I mean, you know, it, in terms of your the structure of your sort of writing life, is it a daily thing? I mean, all, a lot of great writers say that you have to do it every day. Is, is that a sort of compulsion? Yeah, if I could, I would, but I do work almost full time. Um, so it is very difficult to find. So every weekend and every Tuesday, um, that, that is my writing time. And on those days, I will make sure I do some. Even if it's not actual writing, I, then I will maybe edit a chapter or something just to keep myself in there in the world whichever world I'm writing about at the time which could be any one of a million <laughs> um, so I do try and connect to it. even if I don't write every day I try and connect to it every day in some way um, but yeah the day job is, is um, 
getting in the way, but I am going to be able to drop a day soon. So I'll have more days writing than I will at work. So that'll be good. That, that's, that's quite good, yeah. But do you ever so get excited. moments when you're at work, though, and you're in the middle of something, you're really busy at work and there's someone talking yeah. to you and you have a, a light bulb moment about your writing? Do you go, hang on, hold that thought? <laughs> uh, no, I don't. What I usually do is type in, I just uh, keep an email open. If I know I'm liable to have time to think about anything, I have an email to myself open on my work email and I just type notes into it and then I just send it home to myself so I can sometimes get home from work and find four or five different emails with so-and-so goes to the pub on Tuesday, not Friday. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and then I have to hope that I remember what that was all about. That's a great so, idea. Uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and I think in the old days people used to use dictaphones and, and sort of leave themselves sort of voicemail messages, but I, I type quite quickly so it's easier for me to just quickly bang out a quick note into an email and fire it off. I've sent a few from my work email address as well. So people have pointed them out to me and said, oh, I'll just move that email you sent into a different folder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I've never understood the, the issue with all that. I mean, it seems to be in the public domain at the moment with, you know, or oh, they use their private thing to do government business. <laughs> I, I I must admit there was a big blur between my BBC account and my uh, my sort of private life. <laughs> I, I don't know which one's which, but I know that when my BBC account was shut down when I left last year, that suddenly um, an awful lot of things that uh, I relied on were sending things to that email and, and I just couldn't access, you know, password resets and all that stuff. It's just been a disaster. So. Yeah. Anyway, I digress again. <laughs> That's my point. It happens for you. quite a lot. <laughs> In terms of the, um, let's focus then on the world of, of Crossfire and take, take us through the dynamic of our, of our principles. In, in, you know, we're referring to the Clifford and Mackenzie crime series. Tell us about them. Okay. Um, to begin with, when I first wrote it, the, the focus wasn't really on um, Clifford and Mackenzie. Uh, Clifford didn't exist at that point. Um, it was mostly um, Harris and her son, who's, who's 10, I think he's eight in the first book, um, and their attempt to get away from city life just for a, a, just for a weekend. And then the little boy who's been quite um, sheltered for various reasons, which will become clear in the book. Um, his mum is very overprotective of him and he's asthmatic, and which gives her another excuse to be even more protective of him. Um, but she's trying to sort of give him a bit of free reign. So he, he overhears something. And he's a bit of a, uh, a detective book addict. We read all his, his mum's Enid Blyton books. Um, he overhears something and decides to turn it into a bit of a game, uh, which gets him into increasingly dangerous situations. And then the mother, he, you know, he, um, the mother has to then try and get him out of those situations. And she calls on um, what is now Clifford McKenzie, the, the, just the PI team, really, in a small town um, in the Highlands, and they're not doing that well. They're just kind of doing insurance jobs and, and the odd sort of, um, little bit of investigating for missing persons. And they're not they're not exciting. They're not that kind of dynamic type of people. Um, but yeah, they get sucked into it all. And there's a very dark history that Paul McKenzie um, has to face. Um, and yeah, and there's a um, sort of a, there's a I wouldn't say it was corruption exactly because the policeman involved isn't exactly a corrupt officer in the sense that he's not using his position yeah. uh, 
to commit any crimes. He's just very, very greedy and he has a very long standing obsession with something. I'm trying not to give too much away here. So, yeah, there's a dark history with Mackenzie and this police officer, and there's um, Karis and her son, um, and she now blames herself for the fact that, that Jamie, a little 10 year old Jamie, has uh, got himself into these situations because she tried to, as I say, she tried to loosen the reins a little bit. Now she feels she did it too much. So there's a lot of um, guilt and anger going on. Um, but Clifford and Mackenzie, they've known each other for a long, long time. They're, they're not romantically involved. Um, uh, Mackenzie kind of took over the job from Maggie Clifford's father when he retired. So it all sort of builds from there, really. I mean, the, the subsequent books in the series are going to focus definitely look at more at, um, at their history and why they are what they are and how they move forward. So without giving it any way, uh, too much away, I can't really, can't really say anymore. <laughs> I, I love how, um, the, you know, almost the inciting incident uh, with with the, the little boys, he, he's he's sort of, he needs a wee-wee or something. and, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's around the back of a building and that's it. <laughs> and that's it. And suddenly he overhears and he hears an American voice and it's, yeah, bang! You know, yeah. he's he's as you, as you mentioned, his um, Enid Blyton uh, sort of filled mind suddenly. But it's an American in Scotland. It's got to be yeah. something <laughs> suspicious. Be a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's how you know. I remember thinking like that because I, yeah. I devoured yeah. Enid Blyton books, and the Americans are always exciting bad guys. Exactly. That's that's <laughs> that's where Jamie's mind went with that, and he just overheard something that made him go back to his mum. And tell her, and then um, yeah, so it spins from that. Yeah, no, and 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 it, that's that you know, the sort of grounded moment. Um, it, it's so it's so real and you know possible, but it, and you know it's this great adventure and, and and mystery and and drama unfolds from seemingly innocent moments, and I, I love that. I mean, in a sense. Uh, a lot of the best stuff I think that's around at the moment in terms of television is around the uh, the possible you know the 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 drama of of of, of quite small things. Yeah. Uh, thinking about just you know, the ordinary just, people. Absolutely, we were just watching um, the last episode of Time by Jimmy McGovern. Uh, you know how intense if if you create a sort of suffocatingly diff, uh, uh, intense sort of atmosphere as you do with a prison drama like that, yeah. uh, the smallest things can seem like the biggest dramas. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that was an absolutely brilliant series. Well, that's like real life, isn't it? Sometimes the smallest dramas. Well, seem- I make a drama out of everything. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I mean, that, that, that is what I liked about Crossfire. So reading it as a mother, I related to Clarice quite a lot. I related to the relationship with the boy. I also related to the way his mind worked through all the Enid Blyton books and the sort of, you know, but how you, you, you know the difference between reality and fiction, but you still, it sort of blends in your head because you yeah. haven't quite matured enough to make that distinction. And yeah. and, and when you were saying that the, the, um, that the characters aren't necessarily dynamic, I think that's actually a positive because they're mm. ordinary people. And so you relate that's, to them yeah. and you sort of get I, lost in the story uh, as if you could be part of that story. <clears throat> Yeah, that, I, that's, I think that's mostly what I tend to do with my characters. Uh, none of them are very um, 
they don't they wouldn't stand out in a crowd particularly but once you get into their heads it's easy to see how they would get pulled into something and, and figure out how they might try to get out of it not being these you know all guns blazing type people so yeah I, I'm, I'm interested to know when you're out and about let's say having a coffee or something and ice bun or whatever it is you might do or um, cornish pasty i mean how how much observation do you do because i mean you, you're so acutely observed with these brilliantly drawn characters um you, you pick up on the smallest things is that what you're like when you're out and about can you not help yourself or um i don't do it consciously i, I don't sort of um people watch but uh, i sit in a cafe and a notebook and, and but i do notice I notice things that aren't that wouldn't necessarily make. I mean, my friends notice when you, somebody's had their hair cut or when they've had their nails done or <laughs> wearing different makeup. I I don't notice any of that, um, but I might notice the way they say something or the way they, you know, just um, straighten that. Like I, I used a little image um, when Karis was going to confront um, somebody in a bar, and she stood up and and she just wanted to make herself feel right so she just kind of used her boot to pull down her jeans straight down the back of her legs do you see what I mean that's yes like she stands up and she just uses the back uses the boot pulls her jeans straight and then she suddenly feels like okay I can stop thinking about the wrinkly jeans now um <laughs> straight on what I'm doing but I, I that's the sort of thing I notice it's probably not entirely helpful but I think dropping it into a scene does help to um give it a little bit of um texture yeah yeah that's work for it i think it just helps to round it out a little bit so i tend to throw those things in but i, I wouldn't notice if you know she can rake her boots down the back of her jeans but if she just had you know sparkly nails done i would never have noticed <laughs> <laughs> you and me both and me actually <laughs> <laughs> but i like those little touches it's like little touches of body language that mm. convey an emotion so it's not necessarily an expression on the face but it's other things that you yeah. know do the same job carrying herself she's she's she, she's feeling a little bit um, intimidated, but she's going to do the best thing she can do to prepare herself, and that's to stop her mind from thinking about the wrinkly jeans or whatever. <laughs> I can't remember which actor it was. I think it's Derek Jacoby who says, when he was asked, you know, how do you get into characters, I get the shoes first, get the shoes right, and the rest follows. That, that, um, that just makes sense, actually. You've got to feel, yeah. You've got to have your lucky pants on, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I own such a pair. I don't think anybody ever asked Jacoby about his pants. Probably, <laughs> he's a sir, isn't he? So probably not. He strikes me as somebody who would actually answer that question without going, would, yeah. you know, I am so Derek Jacoby, how dare you? And I think Ian McKellen yes. would Well, when he's on the podcast, I'm going to ask him about his pants. All uh, right, okay. I'll hold you to that. <laughs> 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 now you also edit don't you i mean yeah, clearly writing is a very important part of your life um but you, you do some editing as well what does that um give you in terms of insight and, and a sort of feeling for, for for your own writing um i think most of the stuff i edit is for people who are about to make their first submissions because i do editing for cornerstones the literary consultancy um, and the people who go to them are looking for help with structure and with um, sentence structure and stuff as well. So I tend to 
I don't tend to take much from it in in the sense that, um, but I can see when they've done something that I think, oh, actually, I've done that, and it doesn't look right here, so it really doesn't look right in mine either. Um, so while I'm trying to help them, I do I do sometimes just sort of take a little bit of um, a little bit of advice that they haven't given me directly. <laughs> I look at their <laughs> and think, that's a really good, but she should have done it or he should have done it the other way, and then I'll think, well, actually, I did it that way. So I can go back and change that. So just little things like that. But I, um, I, I, I sort of tend to give more. I do mentoring as well. So yeah, helping people to to see um, because when you're writing a book, and Adrian, you'll know this as well. You can get very blinkered. You need a, a wider lens sometimes. You step back and have a have a proper look at it. Um, so I think they've the people that I've done reports for because they do reports 12 to 14 pages and they're probably in-depth reports and I think they from the feedback that I've got they do seem to find it helpful so um, that gives me a bit of a boost as well good I mean it's a, it's a very responsible position isn't it being a mentor and and, and yeah. giving those in in uh, those detailed critical briefs because there's so much I'm, I feel this whenever we're in contact with, with our authors and, you know, perhaps we're pushing to uh, have some changes made or, or whatever it might be. It, it, you, it is a delicate process, isn't it? Of, mm-hmm. of, of giving them the confidence to make the changes, but still landing those thoughts, you yeah. know, those critical thoughts um, effectively and not, I, I, I sometimes flinch from doing it, but sometimes that's the only thing you can do is actually, you know, it's, it's better to, 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 bring them into um to to recognize what the issue is uh first and foremost and then let them deal with with the fallout i think sometimes it's good to capture it as an idea or a suggestion um if you if you phrase it well if you phrase it carefully you can get an idea across and you can sort of convince them that this is the way to go but if you if you capture it as a as a suggestion it's a bit more palatable to them as well so if you say well you know I think this is quite working. Have you thought about maybe doing blah blah blah, and then sort of like up to you, of course. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah actually, I say yeah, that. I say right. it's entirely up to you, but, <laughs> yeah, but. <laughs> no, it's that's 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 fascinating. So, in terms of the plan, if if there is a Terry Nixon sort of plan of campaign, and you were saying that you know stepping back from full time work will give you more time for writing. What would be the dream? Would it be full time writing, or do you need that balance of of day to day life? I would, yeah. I think I need I need to see people. So if I wasn't working, I would have to make time anyway to go out and, and interact in some way. But I think the job is good. I I actually do like my job. I work at the university in the um, <clears throat> faculty office, and it's a Faculty of Arts and Humanities and stuff, so it's it's quite a creative place to work. I work um, in the like the flagship building at the front of the university, and it's it's a really good vibe there. So I think I would want to stay there, um, but I wouldn't mind dropping another day. So it's only doing two days. <laughs> not arguing with that, but I think I would need to keep um, yeah, at least a foot in the door. Plus, it's a really good place for getting names for characters because I, I I'm faced often with just lists and lists of people's names so i can just fix and match it's a great place to find character names from oh that's brilliant yeah yes that's a good idea yeah i hadn't thought of that yeah. <laughs> but their first name their surname yeah exactly that fits i'll use that 
<laughs> it's funny because I, when I sit down and write, oh, I've got to get a new character, I just come up with a name. And it sort of comes from somewhere and then it, they're stuck with it and then a sort of name will suggest something. Um, but I try not to do anything too wacky. I think some writers get yeah. very, very het up about names, though, don't they? And they, especially if somebody suggests they change it, and then, oh, no, 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 well, <laughs> I can't change it. Yeah. No, I think it, once you give them a the name, it's the first thing I do, and then then the rest of it bounces out of that, the, the way they speak, their yeah. um, outlook on life, to, you know, which reflects the way they dress and all that stuff. All emerges yeah. from that, really. But they all have a, I suppose they start with a, a position in the story they've got to perform a, a certain function mm. within that thing that, that is going to push the, the plot along a little bit but at the same time then I, I, I i'm trying to think of the example that uh so that in in the sort of more modern day book that I was writing or am writing i should say sort of sleeping at the moment dormant dormant and there's a chap in whitehall whose job it is to answer an emergency phone and that's his only job and he's an Oxford graduate and he's went into the civil service with great aspirations, but a small mistake meant that he got sent to this airless room where uh, in certain situations of national crisis, he's the one who has to answer the phone and he spends his entire time trying to prepare himself to answer it in two rings, no matter where he is in the room, he can, he can spring. (laughs) And he's doing a wee wee. (laughs) And he fails. And and this is only a page worth of novel. I gave him this entire philosophy, (laughs) motivation, backstory, bitter recriminations. And he resigns from the service because he fails to answer the thing in two rings. It's two and a half rings. And he failed it. But what was his name? That's a... I can't remember. <laughs> began, with, began with A, but it was something, you know, I don't know. I'm going to have to look it up now. <laughs> we sh- by the end of the, well, I won't find it by the end of the interview, but by the end of the programme, yes. we will bring that We will bring later. him up in our finishing um, jabbering. But yeah, I'm, I'm jabbering now. But I mean, it, <laughs> what, but I think that was that, that's a sort of extreme version of how deep you can go with a minor character. But yeah. sometimes you need to do that. I think the best books are, have got that. Everyone's got, um, you know, they're not a cipher. They 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 are very real, they even, if, even if they only spend six <laughs> sentences in your book. Yeah, and the thing is, I have always written series, so you never know when a minor character is going to actually turn out to be a major character or something else. I I came up with um, this character. Um, um, for my Penhaligon series and he was just I just you know he just needed to be on a roof fixing something and he's turned out to be a major character in the Fox Face series and I, I had no idea that was going to happen so you've got to be careful <laughs> you've got to be careful what names you give them in case they turn out to be oh they're actually quite important so <laughs> when you're managing a saga like that uh do you keep like notes of what you said about them in previous books uh, you know, uh, they got a limp that suddenly disappears in book two. Or whatever. <laughs> yeah, never give them a limp. Um, I, not really. Um, I have a spreadsheet called Stuff I Made Up. Um, and it's just all the characters' names from all the books, which book they first appeared in, and there's like a little note about what car they drive or something in, the, in another column, what year they were born. I don't keep detailed character notes. If I need to find out about them, I just go back through my documents and pick up details from there. But, but I've got their, their name, where they're from, the date of birth, and whether they what car they drive. Particularly, 
my historical ones because they're all driving really interesting cars. Um, so if somebody's driving a Bugatti one minute, front of them driving, you know, anything little pathetic the next. So that's the little thing I keep details of. Yeah. 1971 Ford Focus. <laughs> You'd be struggling to drive a 1971 Ford Focus. <laughs> I said they, they didn't make me. No. They lost my date of birth. Ah. Yeah, but Focus has replaced the Escort, uh, which may well have been pro- started to be produced around 1971, if I remember rightly. You should be impressed. the Cortina. I know what type of car I drive. I didn't just say a black car. No, but you, what you didn't know is that your Mark II Focus um, is a Mark II. So clearly, you know, it would have, and that was, oh, honestly, I'm really disappointed that you didn't know that. I'm sorry. That a focus wasn't around in 1971. <laughs> We're going to have to watch your uh, your writing very closely for for those sort of snafus. <laughs> Car snafus, yeah. <laughs> well, I had um, I had Paul Mackenzie ride a motorbike because I used to ride a motorbike. Um, so I know what it feels like when the back wheel goes. So I'm, I'm all right with motorbikes. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. So we need to get you and. Um, <laughs> Ali Morgan, together. Ali Morgan together, because yeah. Uh, yeah, she's a keen biker. So, uh, yeah, this is this is great. I, actually, we're beginning to see some parallels between our authors, the things that they have mutual interests in. It's going to be very interesting when we finally our first is, party. Yeah, because we keep saying <laughs> yeah. gonna, when this pandemic is gone, we're going to have a big party. It could be either the biggest riot and fantastic occasion, or it could be very <laughs> awkward. I don't know. Or there could be a murder. I think there will be a murder. Yeah, and yeah. I never did it. Hey, that sounds like a warning. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way one way to thin out the stable. <laughs> it's not in the contract, but uh, you know, should we become unhappy with you? Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. Making notes, making notes. <laughs> Are there, I've got to ask, given how many genres you, you've you, you've um, uh, worked in now, including horror. Is there is there one more that you, you you want to have a go at? I've got to be careful here because I was asked this ages ago uh, before I'd ever written a historical book, and I said the first, the only one I would never attempt was historical. Um, <laughs> and I've now I've got nine historical novels published, so I, I think I wouldn't mind having a bash at steampunk at some point. Um, okay. Just for fun because uh, I don't know that they sell that well, but I think it would be fun to to have a bit of a. Uh, a bit of a bash at that sometime, yeah. Steampunk, right? Oh, yeah. You have to have another pen name for that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get confused enough already. I don't know where I'm tweeting from or who I'm tweeting <laughs> for. <laughs> well, look, um, Terry, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Congratulations on the new series, Crossfire being the first of the Clifford McKenzie series, and it's out the day after we day put after the podcast. This goes, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're delighted you chose us uh, as your partners for this series. Um, it's been a pleasure to work with you so far, and we hope that for many years to come. But uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you for picking up my um, my poor little trunk novel and, and turning it into something. <laughs> You're welcome. It's our honour. It's our honour. And uh, we wish you every success with it. Thank you very much. The brilliant Terry Nixon and Ardie Nixon, uh, cover name, uh, on Crossfire. That's coming out on Tuesday, so please take a look for that uh, on Amazon or on indeed our own website, www.hobeck.net. It's a brilliant book, and uh, we're thrilled to have her on board, and we look forward to more Clifford McKenzie uh, books in the future. I think we need to make an apology, though. 
For any, anyone listening who now wants to eat a Cornish pasty, we are really sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, and the Ginsters, with all due respect to them, doesn't really cut it. Uh, <laughs> There's going to be a flood of traffic down the M5. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Possibly. They are available mail order, which we've done before from Penzance. Anyway, uh, no, it's great to speak to her and uh, congratulations and good luck with the book. We're, we're thrilled with it and um, we're very optimistic uh, for the future. Uh, so it's been a, a, a solid week, really, with, with good sales across the board for our uh, for our projects. And that's always encouraging. And we're, you know, as we're, you were describing, sort of finessing our performance in advertising, which is crucial in our game. Mm. Definitely, absolutely, absolutely no. It's, it's, it's been a very, I would, I would call it a very creative week actually, because it's, um, you know, some some weeks we spend a lot of time uh, proofreading or preparing books for production, and although that is creative, it's not quite the same sort of creativity. So I, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's always fun. It is, and so this week uh, I'm I'm heading off for for a break uh, for the first time in a very very long time. Obviously, you know, basically lockdowns killed off most help holiday plans over the last 18 months or so but i'm taking my two uh, teenage boys away for a little golf break up in northumberland or northumbria whichever way i don't know which one is currently <laughs> current uh but anyway near hexham which i'm really looking forward to uh i dare say we'll have some stressful moments on the golf course we always do <laughs> do you think i'll have stressful moments at hobeck towers <laughs> well you know i'm gonna miss you it really is you know it's the first time we've been away and apart for very very long time it, it, it'll be about two years that we haven't been apart for that length of time for two years yeah so i shall be pining i might be back before you know it <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're on a, the doorstep thing i miss it's only, you it's only three nights no. away but uh well, four, four nights actually four, sorry yeah. four nights away one in harrogate and three up in uh hexham i get the um, whole bed to myself plus yeah. cat <laughs> <laughs> really yeah yeah no very much um very much looking forward to that and uh Sport's going to sort of dominate the week, I think, clearly because you know England are involved in a uh, Euro 2020 semi-final at Wembley on Wednesday against Denmark. Um, I'm toying with the idea of taking my boys into Newcastle. Can't think of a more passionate footballing <laughs> place to go and watch a football match. Um, that might be a bit uh, a bit leery. If uh, you're listening from Newcastle, stay away. <laughs> <laughs> um, that could be uh, an interesting experience. Um, and I think there'll be a lot of sport here, even though I don't quite share the passion. I, I've been watching a bit of Wimbledon. I love Wimbledon. But um, my two of my three boys are equally as passionately as you are about football. So we will have a fair amount of football on the TV, I'm sure. There will be football. Uh, as you mentioned, Wimbledon, um, just blown away by 18-year-old Emma Raducanu, who got through to the uh, last 16. Uh, so playing, as we put this podcast out later today, on centre court, I presume uh, that's going to be fantastic. I do. I mean, I covered Wimbledon a few for a few years, and I really miss being there. And it's it's always interesting. A lot of my friends, obviously from the BBC, are, are there. My my best friend, uh, apart from yourself, in the world, Russell Fuller is the BBC tennis correspondent. Well, it's Russell's fault we got together. Really, it so. is. Yeah, he brought <laughs> us together. Uh, so you know, uh, I do miss that. And one of the great things about Wimbledon, unless Andy Murray's on court till 10 o'clock at night, is the, <laughs> is the Apre tennis in um, in Southfields, where you go and, uh, you know, find uh, one of the restaurants will be open late and, you know, the, the, the players sometimes gather there. They won't this year, obviously, because they're all in a bubble. But, um, yeah, there's a great vibe, um, you know, 
go and find this little Lebanese place we used to go. And, well, you t- is that the one you yeah, took me to? Yeah, I took, yeah. I took you to it. Yeah, we used to go there, and uh, you know the BBC team. I mean, Russell's very professional, but occasionally he'll sort of let him stay stay out till eleven o'clock at night and have <laughs> a few drinks. But um, he'll pay for it the next morning because you know he's on air from basically breakfast time all the way through till the close of play. And we actually listened to Russell on the radio on Friday, and um, so. Uh, for a bit of context, Russell was a friend of mine from university and I can remember him having all these ambitions to go into sports journalism and radio. And, you know, now now he's there on the radio while we're, we're in the car. And I, I was saying to you, I, it's, I'm really impressed with the speed that he can commentate tennis for radio, which must be one mm-hmm. of the hardest sports to commentate on the radio, I imagine. Yeah, I've done it. And it is hard uh, because you've got this twin speed approach. So you have the the intensity and the speed at which the ball crosses the net and trying to describe the different strokes that are being played is extremely hard, especially if you if you really try and keep up with both players. What you often do is we, you'll focus on, say you take the person who's in front of you, you'll be talking about them, you know, responds with a you know drop shot down the, across the just across the net, so-and-so rushes in, you know, just clips it back. <laughs> so and so rushes in again. You know, it's that kind of thing. I'm sorry, I'm doing a very bad job of it. But, but it, it is that sort of thing. Sometimes they, they ignore what actually what's happening on the court and they're just talking generally and then they'll say so and so nets and it's forty love or whatever it is. And then you really save your energy for the big the break points for the set points and that sort of all the tie breaks. Yeah. I was very impressed in exactly that that I noticed that they would be chatting quite generally and then suddenly they'd launch into the action. And then back to the yeah, the sort of the test match special, pro, you know. <laughs> and he, you know, he's very fortunate. He sat next to people like Pat Cash or I know. Tracy Austin or someone like that. I'm surprised you didn't give him a snog. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, you know, and I've worked with some of those, and I, I, I once commentated with Martina Navratilova, which was, did you? Yeah, That's it was quite abs- cool. absolutely hilarious. And she revealed while we were working together that. Um, that uh, there was a there was a match with so and so was playing. I can't remember. So I want a, a, a young lady was was on court, and it turned out her father was the last man that Nat Martina Navratilova had ever kissed, <laughs> and and she gave us this full anecdote about how they were in love, and they but she crossed the obviously she defected to the United States, and their love he was Russian, and and their their you know their relationship folded because she. They couldn't see each other anymore. That's really quite sad, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely extraordinary. She, she was really oh, he was a fantastic kisser. And, uh, <laughs> I could you know, imagine that. All of this stuff was pouring out, and I, I was just this is radio gold. I mean, you know, I mean, she's obviously uh, in a in a uh, all female relationship nowadays, but 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 you know, th- this whole, this whole side of her came out, and we'd never heard before. <laughs> and she, you know, and it was quite graphic some of it you know anyway i, I digress that's but... a great story <laughs> you haven't told me that one no it was mind-blowing absolutely <laughs> mind-blowing and she's a very generous person to work with because i'm not an experienced tennis commentator in the sense that russell is because he does it you know year in year out that's his, thing. his job yeah. that's right and you know he will tell you that initially when he got the job as tennis correspondent he had to really work on his game to try and be quicker at describing the points it is so hard um but Martina was very generous and sort of saying, oh, you you know, she would say things like uh, you have a very good eye or analysis for the flow of the match or something like mm-hmm. that. Whereas other people we sometimes work with, I work with Stan Collymore, the former Liverpool striker and Nottingham Forest striker. 
And uh, I was doing a football match and he was pointing out all the mistakes I was making <laughs> so and telling the audience that. So it, it, it's always nice when you work with one of the, one of the, the legends who is prepared to, uh, to recognise your passion for the game as much as theirs. That's lovely. And it's lovely when you hear about uh, someone who's quite well known who you don't know much about personally and hearing about, you know, that they are very generous and... Um, welcoming person in, in their real life as well so yeah no no absolutely no she she's uh, a delight i mean she has a reputation if you cross her and if you let her down in any way she'll be very very tough mm. as indeed john McEnroe can be but actually when you work with them in that context and uh i found the same with boris becker um they're actually delightful they are really really and some of the best of the commentators have a real interest in you as a, as a, I mean, it staggers me when they're asking about your kids and stuff like this. It, it, it's absolutely astonishing. Mm. Um, whereas a lot of people sort of perhaps a little lower down the rankings in terms of superstarness can be very, very shrill and, sh- and, and, and shrew like and, and, and um, self-absorbed, but the real greats, um, they may have been self-absorbed as performers and as athletes, but certainly the ones that the BBC use tend to be have gone past that stage and have a, a self-awareness that, that, that is quite refreshing and different. Yeah, that's quite interesting because that, you, that raises a question, is it an age thing where sort of uh, with age comes wisdom? And mm, I think, I think there's, there's a common thing. That they've all written autobiographies or had them ghosted or whatever, and actually that self-reflection, you know, helps but they've all gone through massive challenges and they've all had um well slightly warped sort of childhoods i suppose oh, because completely. The, because tennis, you know, yeah. yeah absolutely in, in tennis you know you, uh, when my son ben picked up a racket and i kind of forced him to play really from the age of probably about six um and i would take him to tournaments and um some of the people he, he played and sometimes beat are now the, the best youth players in in the uk and um that's not saying a lot necessarily, but uh, nonetheless, they had the most pushy parents you could imagine. And I, I remember having being dragged into rows with parents who, because what happens in mini tennis is the, the kids are in, they have to, there's no umpire. They have to call the shots themselves. So if the ball is out, they call it. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And one mother accused Ben of miscalling a line, you know, I miss pathetic really yeah yeah and went absolutely mental at me and said your son's a complete cheat and all this sort of stuff and um yeah <laughs> her, her son yeah uh, for his age group was number one in the uk now but um it was ridiculous and i remember ben did beat him and goodness knows how because his kid played 30 hours a week or something silly already at that age it was crazy um but uh the nature of uh, his his personality at that time was that he was very very um placid and mm. sort of you know it was just a game to him whereas this kid it was everything and so every time he lost a point he beat himself up and he was sort of throwing his racket and all this sort of malarkey well, and basically for he, Wimbledon then <laughs> yeah no he beat, he beat himself I mean that's that's the truth of it he, yeah he beat himself and uh but his mother was completely she was videoing the whole thing and she's like, I'm going to analyze the video footage and show you your son's ball with that she had three cameras on the court it's ludicrous oh, I don't know how we got onto this <laughs> this is but that's the nature of the hobcast isn't it we will talk any old stuff at the end of the program and it just sort of it just happens but it's fascinating is it because it, you had a little incident on the golf course which it's not not quite the same yeah. but it just shows that 
when children are learning a sport, they need to have a little bit of understanding mm. when they make mistakes or they don't quite realise something or they... Well, let's, let me explain what happened. So I took your son, Toby, who's 11. Well, you know, my soon to be stepson at some point, you know, who knows. But <laughs> anyway, I, I, he's picked up golf this the last few weeks. It's been a, a joy to watch him pick it up so quickly. And he's got a lovely swing, but it was the first time he'd been on the course properly uh, without his coach. And we were in amongst, uh, it was an afternoon, 4.30, we went started. Beautiful afternoon. Suddenly the whole world decided that they wanted to go and play golf. And so there was a lot of pressure on from behind in terms of groups coming through and so we let a few people through because toby naturally being his first time on grass uh was taking quite a few shots and we were quite slow but there were a particular couple of gentlemen i use the word advisedly um who decided that they were going to put us under pressure because we hadn't let them through and so one of them hit his ball to within about two meters of us on the previous hole then toby went to the tee shot on the fifth sluiced sliced it uh, sorry, hooked it to the left, went through the trees and, and came close to this other guy who'd, who'd been bullying us. Uh, it was completely innocent, but he, uh, Toby doesn't know you have to shout four to warn people that your ball's gone off offline. Uh, this guy went mental and, uh, you know, Toby was left in tears and it was horrible and I got very angry. Um, and it was one of those things which I don't want to repeat of really. And that's what, it's the, the self-defeating nature of golf to be perfectly honest, is that when people behave like that and get, make no allowances for the fact that there's a young lad playing his first game on, he's excited to be on the grass and whatever else, like learner drivers, people who hassle learner drivers, you know, have a word with yourself. <laughs> Put yourself in their shoes. Remember what it was like when you started. But I think people do forget, don't they? They forget. Oh, they do. They're just so self-absorbed and, and selfish. Anyway, it was an unhappy incident. Um, but Toby's passion for golf has not no, been No, it's lovely because he had a lesson yesterday and he, he was thrilled. He loved it. So, Well, we'll have to find out next week whether my passion for, <laughs> for golf has diminished after four rounds on uh, a European tour course, but uh, we'll look forward to that. Well, I think you'll, 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 uh, you'll, be, you'll have sore feet, if nothing else. Now, we'll next, let's talk about our guest next week. Um, and I, I do apologise, I can't remember his surname. I know him as Scottish Bob. I know him as Scottish Bob too. Bloody Scotland Bob, if you're listening, we're sorry. But he is coming on. He's the organiser. We talk about you quite a lot as well, but you're Scottish Bob. We'll get ourselves sorted out. Anyway, that's something we can talk about. Bloody Scotland next week with Bob, who organises it. And He's the director of the um, festival, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely, which is being held in Stirling in September, hopefully. I'm sure it will be. So we're looking forward to that. Okay, that's next week's interview. This week, of course, we've been speaking to Terry Nixon and Ardy Nixon's Crossfire is out tomorrow. Yes, very, very excited, very excited so, about that. Another Hobet book. Another Hobet book in the world. If you want to know more about the company and about us, go to our website, www.hobeck.net.net, I should say. I'm off for a few days, uh, as I say, you know, lushing it around on the on the fairways of Northumbria, Northumberland. So I'm in charge. You're in charge. <laughs> Trying to do too much damage. Rubbing hands in glee. <laughs> We will miss each other, but we'll catch up again for another Hobcast, episode 26, next week. So from me, Asian Hobart. And me, Rebecca Collins. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts from. We'd really appreciate it. But until then, have a lovely, wonderful, creative week. Bye-bye. 
You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.